time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. So let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you thought about philosophy? If you're like me, philosophy was a long time ago in a college course that seemed like philosophy was really dead and not much help in today's world. It was just a labyrinth of ideas and thoughts. Well, that was true for me until a few years back when somebody noted for me that a lot of what I was writing about sounded like one type of philosophy, and that is stoicism. Now, that's not about being stoic, you know, the people with a stiff upper lip that don't show any emotion, but stoicism tied to an ancient philosophical thought process. So I thought it would be good to actually bring in a real-life Stoic who could talk to us from both the perspective of a historian of Stoic philosophy and as a therapist who uses that in his approach to helping people through everyday life. So today, Donald Robertson, who is an author, a therapist, a speaker, and all-around good guy— who is also well-versed in Stoic thought, comes in to share with us some ways that we can use Stoic philosophy to find our way through this current pandemic. Welcome now, Donald Robertson. Donald, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to talk about this because this is one of those topics that I find to be completely intriguing intellectually and practically speaking. So today we're going to talk about how philosophy can actually impact your life in in a a good way, not a put you to sleep back in college way, but a good way. I would love to hear a little bit, though, on how you got to here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a psychotherapist, a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and uh, a writer and a trainer. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you the story about how I got involved with this particular subject. Then, uh, My father passed away when I was 13 years old, and that set me on a path kind of looking, I guess maybe looking for a father figure and all that kind of stuff, looking for a direction in life. And I started to read about different religions, and I went to university and did my degree in philosophy in Aberdeen. And I was looking for something that would give me a kind of practical philosophy of life. And, you know, the only major school or one of the few major schools of classical philosophy that you don't normally study in an undergraduate curriculum, the Stoics. So I studied Plato and Aristotle and a lot of modern philosophers at university. And I kind of thought, I like this stuff, but it's not really kind of satisfying this need in me. It's not really giving me a, a workable philosophy of life. I was interested in Buddhism because that mm. seemed to be giving more and more of a, what I wanted. But I was kind of looking for something more Western, more familiar somehow. And then uh, after I graduated, uh, I came across the writings of a French scholar called Pierre Hadot, who was an expert on Plotinus and the Neoplatonists. And that kind of came because I'd been reading Christian Gnostic literature and the Gnostics were very influenced by the Neoplatonists. So that kind of got me into reading Hadot. And then uh, Hadot wrote about practical philosophy in the Hellenistic period in general. And I noticed immediately that the school of philosophy that had the most practical exercises and contemplative techniques, according to Hadot, was the Stoics. And I thought, wow, I've spent four years at Aberdeen studying philosophy and they never, they barely mentioned the Stoics to me. And so I dug into the Stoics and it hit me like a big epiphany 
that, that this is what I'd been looking for all along. It was like a Western equivalent to Buddhism, as people mm. sometimes say. And then it hit me as I was training in psychotherapy that this was the philosophical inspiration for cognitive therapy as well. And the way I like to put it to people is I was kind of interested in therapy. I was kind of interested in meditation techniques. I was interested in philosophy. And I felt like I was kind of juggling all these balls in the air and I, I couldn't quite make it all come together. And I read the Stoics and it was like it all just kind of suddenly coalesced into one thing. And, you know, half jokingly, I like to say as well, I suddenly realized I wouldn't have to read as many books as well. It was kind of easier. I thought I'll just read books on Stoicism now and it kind of covers all of these angles in one in one place. It's my one one stop shop for, for like philosophy, therapy and meditation. And that was 25 years ago, roughly, I think. Uh, now it's kind of time's been getting on and I'm still into it. You know, so it kind of stayed with me. And uh, I guess I, at that point in life, I, I found the thing that I was looking for. After having been searching for, I don't know, like maybe five or 10 years or whatever, it suddenly came to me. You know, it's interesting because uh, Stoicism is has, having a moment these days. And uh, yeah. so, you know, they used to say, I, I was cool before this was cool. And, and you're, you're a Stoic before they were Stoic. Before it was cool. <laughs> before it was cool. <laughs> when I was writing about it, it was kind of a really nerdy thing. And, you know, there weren't that many books on it. And, uh, you know, at first it just seemed like I'd got really into this really obscure thing um that no one else was interested in and then somewhere along the line it kind of became trendy and now there's i run a discussion group in the internet it's got seventy thousand people in it and you know the conference we run gets bigger every year there's more books than i can keep up with on the subject now so yeah like i just by chance it kind of became trendy there are maybe reasons why it did but it took me by surprise. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Well, and it's a good, good place to be. What's interesting about your writing is you've done both historic stuff, you know, talking about the history of it, but also the practical, how do you apply it stuff? And, Often they're the people uh, kind of fall in one of the one or the other camp, the historical people or the applied people, and you've yeah. you've kind of managed both. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like I'll tell you a little story. When I was speaking to my publisher once, they they we were kind of talking about this idea for the last book I wrote actually, and they they at one point my editor said, "Listen, Donald, let me explain it to you this way." He said, "When you go in a bookshop, he goes, you know how there's like a bookshelf that says." self-help and I was like yeah and he goes you know there's another one that says like sort of history and I was like yeah and he goes and then there's a section that's got books in philosophy and I was like yeah and he goes we can't shelf your book in all of them right right <laughs> and he was like you, you can't mash together this many genres really in one book not normally like and then somehow we managed to kind of talk them round, and we ended up just doing that anyway so the last book I wrote yeah is like you know, historical biography, it's philosophy, it's got stuff about CBT and self-help all kind of mashed together in it. And I think what they maybe didn't, what, what people sort of think that's strange and it's combining a lot of things together, but what they maybe don't realize is that it, it was only in the grand scheme of things fairly recently that anyone ever thought of dividing those subjects like historically in the ancient world, they were all considered to be different aspects of one thing anyway. Philosophers and psychotherapists used to be the same people. Um, you know, the Chris Ipis, the second head of the Stoic school, wrote a book called On Therapeutics. And it, it would be inconceivable, really, to people in the ancient world that they would have thought of psychotherapy as being a separate thing from philosophy. Mm. You know, they were all... And there are benefits, obviously, to separating things, but there's also benefits to bringing them back together again as well. Sometimes, you know, people are are craving something a little bit broader 
and more rounded to, to learn about. So your publisher wanted you to pick a shelf and you're pointing mm-hmm. to the fact that at one point it was just one big porch. <laughs> That's yeah. where this started. So let's let's just jump back a little bit just so people kind of have a, a common place. When we say stoic or stoicism, you're not talking about when somebody says, oh, that person is stoic, meaning they're expressing no mm-hmm. emotion. Um, but give some historical context and, uh, and then let's walk from the historical to the practical. Yeah. Well, also, it might help to say, let's start off with semantics. You know, if I say that someone's an Epicurean today, I guess that means they like gourmet food and stuff, right? Yeah, right. But uh, an Epicurean philosopher, and usually we now we say either with a capital E or a lowercase e. So a, cap- a capitalized Epicurean followed a school of philosophy that was actually kind of austere in some ways. And a cynic today means someone that's kind of negative about other people. Um, whereas in the ancient world, the cynic with a capital C again was a particular school of philosophy, the followers of Diogenes, and the same is true of the skeptics and the academics. You know, all of these words, their meaning has become kind of caricatured in a way over time. And uh, stoic is a good example of that. Lowercase stoic just means someone who has a stiff upper lip and they're unemotional. And the reason it's quite one reason it's quite important to distinguish these things, particularly for psychotherapists and psychologists, is that we have modern day scales that are used to measure lowercase stoicism, like the Liverpool Stoicism scale. And there's uh, actually a, a, a negative correlation between that kind of stoicism and, and healthy coping, and particularly coping with pain or coping with stressful situations. So in other words, we know that lowercase stoicism is generally quite unhealthy psychologically it's about repressing uh, feelings being ashamed of them trying to conceal them it's not very adaptive but capitalized stoicism is very different it's a much more nuanced approach to the emotions and it's as we said earlier the inspiration for cognitive behavioral therapy so the history of it i should well let's just maybe we'll say very briefly what stoicism is where it came from then um having said what it isn't so 301 BC, there was a shipwreck, and Zeno of Citium, uh, he was a, a Phoenician merchant, so he was an immigrant, he wasn't a, a native Athenian, was washed ashore, he, he was a wealthy man, he lost his fortune, and he, as a beggar, he trained uh, in cynic philosophy, he was left kind of penniless and destitute, friendless in Athens, uh, an immigrant in Athens, and he began studying philosophy. And he studied the cynic philosophy, which is this very kind of austere uh, philosophy about renouncing things. And then he tried to put together a synthesis of different philosophical approaches that he found at Athens. He studied philosophy for 10 or 20 years. And 301 BC, I should say, is when he actually founded the Stoic school. So, um, And he didn't want to name it after himself. So we mentioned Epicureanism. It's named after Epicurus. Pythagoreanism, named after Pythagoras. But the Stoic school isn't called Zenonism or Zenonianism, which is lucky because it's a bit of a mouthful. So they didn't name it after the founder because they didn't want it to become a sort of personality cult like that. And uh, they named it instead after the place where they met, the Stoa Poikile, which means, uh, it's a bit hard to translate into English, but a Stoa is uh, a big porch. Um, Actually, it was kind of an art gallery. It had these paintings on the back wall of it from famous artists. Um, and it was a sort of public building on the edge of the Athenian Agora. So it's actually also the same place where Socrates used to do 
philosophy. And the important thing about that is that it was completely out in the open, whereas the other philosophical schools were more secluded and set apart from uh, the general public. The Stoics took philosophy back into the marketplace, back into the agora. So my friend Jules Evans once described it as a philosophy of the street, and that kind of, in a way, is the connotation of the name, it's street philosophy, philosophy for the kind of common people in a way, a down-to-earth practical philosophy. And Stoicism was heavily influenced by Socrates, but it particularly took the ethics of Socrates and the therapeutic dimension of Socrates's earlier philosophy and really focused on that. So in the ancient world, uh, schools of philosophy were known as, for having this therapeutic or practical dimension, but of all the different schools of philosophy, Stoicism was the one that placed the most emphasis upon that aspect of philosophy. For example, the, the Platonists, the academics, as they were known, had, as the name implies, a more academic, a more kind of theoretical approach to philosophy. You know, the Stoics were the ones that had the most therapeutic uh, approach to philosophy. And Stoicism flourished for 500 years, partly because um, uh, Greece was uh, eclipsed by Rome, and the Romans particularly loved Stoicism. They really took to it. They embraced Greek culture in general, but Stoicism really resonated with Roman values. And then so a number of famous Romans, it's really famous Romans that we, uh, whose writings survive today. We have less than 1% of the ancient Stoic writings that survive today. We have none of the complete writings, only fragments of the founders of Stoicism. But what we do have are, are writings that derive from Marcus Aurelius, who's the last famous Stoic, the Roman emperor, uh, Seneca, who's an advisor, or rhetoric teacher, and speechwriter to the Emperor Nero, and Epictetus, who was a freed slave who taught philosophy at Rome and, and later in Greece. So we have a bunch of writings from these guys, and also from Cicero, who wasn't a Stoic. He was an academic, but he was a very educated man who'd studied philosophy in Athens, and he knew a lot about Stoicism and tells us a lot about Stoicism. So those are our main sources. I say that because some people, even if they don't know that much about Stoicism, will maybe have heard of Seneca. They've probably seen the movie Gladiator, right, with Russell Crowe, and they've seen Richard Harris playing Marcus Aurelius at the beginning of it. So that's a little bit about what Stoicism was, where it came from, and who they were. And really the essence of the philosophy is this doctrine that virtue is the only true good. So sometimes we have to struggle with translation. I'm not super keen on the word virtue. It's a little bit anachronistic now. Uh, the word in Greek is arete, which I think would be better translated as moral wisdom because it's a kind of intellectual, a cognitive thing for the Stoics. The virtues are all forms of moral wisdom for the Stoics. So moral wisdom for Stoics is the only true good. And the corollary of that is that external things that the majority of people value and crave in life, like health, wealth, reputation, the Stoics call external goods, are viewed as being relatively unimportant or of secondary value. Their value isn't really, com they do have value, but it's not comparable to the value that Stoics place on, on enlightenment, moral wisdom and, uh, and virtue in general. And because the Stoics placed supreme value on this inner state, the condition of our mind or soul, that led to a kind of psychological or emotional resilience. And that's one of the reasons that people are particularly interested in it today. Suddenly during the pandemic, everybody wants to cope like a stoic. <laughs> well, and we, we were talking a little bit before that uh, for a stoic, uh, this kind of thing is something you would have already prepared for in some ways, not the exact details. I mean, you don't know the details, but what would that preparation look like? The stoics call this premeditatio malorum. 
And Seneca talks about it a lot, but the other Stoics mention it as well. And it's this idea that on a regular basis, you should imagine all the main catastrophes in broad strokes that could befall a human being as if they're already happening to you. So Seneca says uh, slavery, exile, sickness, bereavement, poverty. He's got this little checklist of disasters that could happen. And he says he tries to imagine that they're already happening to him so that he can mentally rehearse coping with them. And in particular, so he can mentally rehearse the right attitude, the right kind of perspective. Oh, also a little semantic thing, uh, a a curiosity that that people might, uh, might like. The adjective philosophical. So we talk about somebody being getting a diagnosis of a terminal illness and we say how did he deal with it and we say oh he was quite philosophical about it actually Mm. so the way that we use the word philosophical today as an adjective is kind of synonymous with being stoic about things uh so that you could say that the stoics are particularly trying to capture this philosophical attitude towards adversity and that's all it isn't it because today when we talk about philosophy as a discipline it, it has a very tenuous connection to what we mean by someone being philosophical in the face of adversity mm-hmm. and that word harks back to what philosophy used to be like in the ancient world and what in particular the stoics wanted to teach people okay so just to dive in a little bit further on that you know, they would have contemplated uh some uh, these categories of bad things that can happen so I've got a uh, a friend who had done some um, a little bit of stoic reading. I will say a very little, and he said, "Well, I'm in good shape. I'm a hypochondriac. I can continually think of all the things that I could have." So, what is the difference between thinking about what might happen and getting into a very pessimistic "these are going to happen to me" or looking over your shoulder for it to happen? Mm. So that would be like. Um in modern CBT, the same question comes up. You know, actually, in a lot of the questions that people have about Stoicism, the similar questions come up about CBT. So in CBT, people might say, well, we do, uh, for example, imaginal exposure therapy, we call it, where we get people to visualize things that they might fear happening. And so some people might say, well, what's the difference between imaginal exposure and worrying about stuff? Like, what's the difference between a kind of adaptive, a helpful, a therapeutic way of anticipating stuff, bad things that could happen, and this kind of maladaptive, this unhealthy way of thinking about it? And, you know, one is that generally when people worry about stuff, it's more of a verbal process. It tends to involve more questions rather than conclusions. So, you know, how will I cope? Like, what if this happens to me? Um, it involves strong value judgments and emotive language like oh my god it's going to be awful it's going to be a disaster it's going to be a catastrophe so catastrophizing things and kind of it's circular thinking that goes round and round for a prolonged period whereas imaginal exposure involves more requires more patience Um, it tends to be more visual more concrete and to focus on one aspect of the problem at a time until we've had chance to emotionally process it and adapt to it and so stoics are talking more about this kind of patient coming to terms with things and focusing on them in a more concrete 
uh, manner so that we really give ourselves a, a chance to to process the emotions connected to them rather than just going round and round them in circles like we do when we're worrying. But also the Stoics want us to rehearse adaptive ways of thinking. And in particular, for, for the Stoics, that means something they don't really have a term for, um, but I would use a, a modern jargon term for cognitive therapy to describe. So we talk today in CBT about cognitive distancing, or the behavioral psychologists call something similar, verbal diffusion. And this is integral to Stoicism. So the Stoics want us to realize that when we say something is really awful, that the awfulness of it doesn't reside in the external situation. It's something that we project onto it. That comes from us. Mm -hmm. We're the ones saying it's awful. Nature doesn't care less. To nature, the coronavirus is just another thing that it does. It's neither good nor bad. Uh, you know, these values don't inhere uh, in external nature. They're our reaction or our judgment to them. And someone else might view situations from a different perspective. You know, what we see as bad, someone else might actually see as good or, you know, view in a very different way. So the Stoics want us to, they, talk, they do talk to us about separating our value judgments from external reality. They think our, our value judgments become fused with reality. So if I say that a situation is a catastrophe, I, I tend to fuse my judgment with it so that I don't see any separation between the value judgment that it's catastrophic and the external event itself. And the Stoics say, no, the catastrophizing is something that you're doing, that you're bringing to the party. You know, you're, it's like a lens through which you're viewing things. And we just want you to realize that's coming from inside you. That's your judgment rather than a quality of external reality. So when the Stoics say we should mentally rehearse things, they want us to separate our value judgments at the same time and be aware of the effect that our own thinking is having on our emotions. So you could describe that as a kind of mindfulness, of course. Well, and that, which is interesting because I, I get to watch you describing this. And so I'm going to describe a little bit uh, for people who are listening that what you were doing was backing away. You know, you're doing a, a kind of a, a physical backing away, which shows me that one piece of this is that you're, and at some point the thoughts, you know, a thought is, can be surrounding us and, and it's almost like glasses that we forgot are on our face. And yeah. what you're doing is, uh, describing is pulling away from that and recognizing that the thought is going on within you, not that external event, that your reaction to the external event is separate from that external event. So the the analogy actually that Aaron Beck used to give um, when he explaining cognitive distancing to his clients in cognitive therapy um, was, uh, he said, imagine you're wearing colored glasses and he said, uh, a lack of distance, or we might say fusion today, would be if you're looking through yellow gl tinted glasses, let's say you just assume that the world is yellow. That's the way it looks. The world is yellow. And so the yellowness is fused with reality. But suppose someone comes along and they're wearing rose tinted glasses. And now they tell you, no, the, the world is rose tinted. Then you might take your glasses off and look at them. Or you might just realize that the yellowness uh, is part of the, the lens and it doesn't exist outside of that and so that would be distancing because you're now gaining a separation between the yellowness and the world that you're looking at you now realize that it's the lenses that are yellow and not the world itself uh, so beck says uh, you could say that cognitive distancing is kind of as if you were taking those glasses off and looking at them rather than looking at the world through them
It's interesting as you're talking about that. I, you know, I was tying into um, there was a, a report on a public radio show. And they were talking about the how we describe things in terms of the virus, and they were challenging the power of uh, being at war with this virus. The war analogy, and the person said, "You know, I remember I was talking with uh, the, the epidemiologist and other people about other things before, and the term they used was educating. That any virus is educating our immune system, and they began to discuss the difference between having the war analogy. You know that that kind of gets us ready for the fight versus the this is a challenge to our our system, um, and just that change." reminded me that uh, how we're describing and thinking about things does create an emotional reality within us. And that's mm-hmm. what you're, you're talking about. The Once you can distance it, it does change your emotional reality. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you, and sometimes in, in modern therapy, we, we talk about this idea of cognitive flexibility as well. Uh, and I find that a useful way of articulating it. It gives you options. You know, even if you choose to to continue talking about it and thinking about it in the same way, there's a kind of loosening up mm. of your thinking that allows you to realize that it's not the only way of looking at things. You know, you I might be choosing to look at it this way, but I could look at it from another perspective. Um, and actually, epidemiologists, when they're talking about this, um, you know, are more likely, I think, you know, we, the majority of people probably see it as a, just as a terrible catastrophe um, because there are terrible t- things about the, the current pandemic, obviously. But another way of looking at it, which I think a, an epidemiologist would be more likely to, to be conscious of, is that in some respects we've been incredibly lucky um, because it could quite easily have been a, a pandemic of a virus that has a much, much higher fatality rate. Mm-hmm. So Ebola has a, a 50% fatality rate, whereas this virus is like 1% or 2% or whatever it finally turns out to be. And so terrible though it is, it would have been far, far worse if it was a much more lethal virus that had spread all over the world like this one has. And it may be that when perhaps inevitably that there is a, a spread of a more fatal virus in the future, that the world is more prepared now to cope with it. So there's, there's always another way of looking at things. And one of the features of uh, emotional distress is often that when we get really upset about things, we tend to kind of narrow down our focus and as if we're kind of putting the negative aspects of things under a magnifying glass and we lose awareness of these alternate perspectives. Um, so having this broader, more flexible way of looking at things and realizing there's different angles that we could adopt on it tends to not completely eliminate our feelings, but to to loosen them up and to dilute them somewhat so that we feel a bit less overwhelmed by them. So you go from kind of a laser focus of a mm-hmm. flashlight to a broader floodlight that, that at least allows you some more possibilities to be seen. It reminds me in a way of like, uh, well, if you write a book or if as a public speaker, you know, speaking at conferences, you get feedback from the audience and there might be a hundred people in the audience or there might be say a hundred people that read your book that say give you reviews or feedback. And they'll say there's one guy that says, oh, I just thought it was complete garbage. It's the worst book I've ever read in my life. And you know, whatever he says, right? So if I was depressed at the time, I might just really focus on that one bad review and kind of forget temporarily that there may be 99 other reviews that said they thought it was fine or, or some of them said they thought it was the best book that they'd ever read yeah 
So when we're kind of in the grip of a negative emotion, whether it's fear or anger or sadness, we often tend to be very selective in our thinking. Mm. And we kind of go, we have confirmation bias. We look for negative evidence that supports our, our negative appraisal of the world. But it's very selective. You could also call it a lie of omission. So it's a lie when we misrepresent the facts, but it's also a lie when we leave out crucial information. We call that a lie of omission. And I, I think the, the Stoics believed that we are, this is almost endemic in human nature. We're always guilty of these lies of omission because there's always a bigger, broader, more nuanced context in which we could be looking at events. And they think the, the, the philosopher... Um, in a sense, transcends this because he's always trying to think about things in more cosmic terms, in terms of a bigger picture, both uh, in relation to time and space. And uh, they believe that wisdom, in part, can be defined as having this more comprehensive perspective on things. You mentioned a word uh, a little bit ago, and then I, I jumped in, and that was mindfulness. So what is a stoic uh, approach to mindfulness? Uh, we, we're often exposed to more of a, a Buddhist or Eastern idea of mind, mindfulness. What would that look like for a stoic? Well, I'm going to rock the boat, first of all, by saying people that are, I sometimes I'm surprised how easy it is to upset people that are into Buddhist mindfulness, actually, because they're all supposed to be very tranquil and serene. But the one thing that really gets on the goat I find, is when you say, you know, like the whole concept of mindfulness in some ways was always part of Western culture. It's not an entirely uh, Oriental or Eastern idea. Um, when we think about Buddhist mindfulness, in a sense, we're translating it into, into Western terms that we've already inherited from the, the Greco-Roman tradition because they had a concept of mindfulness. And the Greeks even have a technical term for it. They call it prosoke. Uh, which means attention, but it's specifically attention to our own thinking. In jargon terms, for the Stoics, it's uh, attention to our hegemonicon, our ruling faculty, our consciousness, if you like, but particularly the part of our conscious mind that makes value judgments. So for Stoics, that's really what we want to pay attention to. And it's tied into this famous quote from the Stoics that most CBT practitioners learn at the beginning of their training. So in the fifth passage of the Enchiridion, or Handbook of Epictetus, he says, it's not events that upset us, but our opinions about them. And Albert Ellis used to teach that to all of his clients and all of his students. So it became kind of foundational to, to early cognitive behavioral therapy, in particular to REBT, to rational emotive behavior therapy, way back in the, in the late 50s and, and the 60s. Um, and so this idea that it's not things that upset us, but our opinions, or more specifically our value judgments about them, well, a good stoic would be constantly paying attention, so constantly on the lookout for that. So it's not just a principle that they might apply to a particular problem, but it's a philosophy of life for them. And that becomes a, a form of mindfulness. The stoics say that the, the wise man or wise woman has this kind of continual attention that they pay to the way that they're making value judgments and imposing them on the world. It makes me laugh because if you go to Greece today, they still use that word in modern Greek, but it's used, for example, on the metro um, or, or also if someone has a, an Alsatian, like a, a Doberman, a guard dog, they would have a sign with a picture of the dog that says prosoke. It means like watch out. Uh, pay attention, uh, mind the gap, as we, we say on the London Underground. So it's on warning signs 
Um, but the ancient Greeks used this term to refer to a kind of attention that people would pay to their own minds, their own thinking. Mm. And so today, um, I hear and watch people uh, who try to uh, say they're they're paying attention. That's the problem. You know, <laughs> this thing is going on. They're paying attention, and it's scaring them to death. How is that different than? being attentive and, uh, and, and being more uh, of a stoic approach? Well, to go back to what we were mentioning earlier, we, we said, you know, um, so f- when people are angry or depressed or, or anxious, they're, they're paying attention, but they're paying attention selectively usually mm. to stuff that confirms their, their emotional bias. So people who have anxiety disorders do something that cognitive therapists call threat monitoring, so they're always on the lookout for possible signs of danger in their environment. Someone who has health anxiety would be a, a really good example. They pay a lot of attention to the body. They're look, constantly looking out for potential symptoms in the body, but they might be ignoring safety signals, like things that might tell them that actually they're in good health, like that might be reassuring to them. So the mindfulness for Stoics, on the one hand, would require a broadening of attention so that things uh, are placed more within a wider, more balanced context. And that would also be a chronological thing. So say you lose your job rather than just kind of focus. One of the, one of the curiosities about human psychology is if you think about any event that befalls you, you kind of have to choose the time slice that you think about, right? Because like your life is a whole story. So to think about anything, you've got to think about, well, what's, what are the time parameters? Like, where's the beginning and the end of the bit that you're thinking about? And, you know, when people think about bad things, they, they usually just kind of focus on the worst aspect of it and more or less stop there. But usually there's a period through which we then recover from bad things that befall us. So if somebody's dumped by their girlfriend or boyfriend and they're worrying about it and ruminating about it, they'll usually dwell on the worst aspect of mm. it, the dumping or whatever. But if therapists will often simply say to them, well, what's probably going to happen next? And then what's probably going to happen? And then what's probably going to happen? And then what's, so they go, well, I'll probably sit at home and feel really sad. And I guess then I'll, I'll, I'll probably, you know, like sulk about it and, and feel down. And, and, I, and then what's probably going to happen next? Well, I guess probably eventually I'll start going out again. And then what's probably going to happen? Well, I guess I'll, probably eventually I'll meet someone else. And, and what's probably going to happen? Well, I guess I'll probably have another relationship and things will move on. But if you broaden your chronological perspective in that way, it usually kind of makes things seem at least less extreme when we're responding to them. So mindfulness for Stoics would require like noticing the narrowing of our attention and encouraging ourselves to think about things in a broader, more balanced frame of reference, but also noticing, not just looking at something and thinking, oh my God, just let's pay attention to how catastrophic this is, but notice that we are the ones that are catastrophizing it. So again, this cognitive distancing aspect um, would be essential to, to stoic mindfulness. It would require not just awareness of our experience, but awareness of the separation between our thoughts and our experience. Yeah, it's interesting because I've had this observation that you just pointed to that uh, when people do that catastrophizing, the what's going to happen, they ask the question, they never ponder the answer. You know, they, get, they only get to, the, you know, my spouse is going to leave me. What's going to happen now? And never, yeah. never really go with what's going to happen now, or I've got cancer, what's going to happen now? They never yeah. ponder the end point. Well, you, and I always think of it in terms of two complementary questions, actually, because it reminds me of 
there was an old theory of stress developed by a guy called Richard Lazarus in the 60s um, called the transactional or sometimes the seesaw model of stress. And actually, it was the original inspiration because it was a cognitive model. It was the original inspiration for Aaron Beck's model of anxiety. And it said there are two main sides to it. There's your appraisal of threat and your appraisal of coping. And the stress or anxiety have to do with these being out of, uh, out of balance, uh, the, the, an extreme appraisal of threat and a kind of minimizing appraisal of your coping. So you might say, well, this is a really dangerous, threatening situation, but I'm a pretty tough guy and I can deal with anything. And then you probably wouldn't feel as stressed. Or you might say, well, this is a kind of troubling situation. I mean, it's not completely catastrophic, but I'm so useless, I can't deal with anything. I wouldn't even know where to begin, in which case, you know, you might feel stressed. So the most stressed kind of combination you can have is thinking this is a horrible, threatening, dangerous situation, and I've got absolutely no idea how to cope. I'm completely useless at dealing with these things. And then you'll feel really stressed, really anxious, and really thrown and when people worry, they, they do both. They say, you know, what, what's going to happen? Like, and they imagine the worst case scenario and focus on the worst that could happen usually. Um, but then they'll also say, how will I cope? What will I do? Who's going to help me? How will I deal with it? And they don't answer that question either. Like, so they don't kind of think through the practical reality of what's going to happen and then what's likely to follow on very clearly they just usually laser beam on the worst bit but they also don't really explore their options for coping they 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 usually feel kind of lost and focus on this sense of hopelessness and helplessness and you know not knowing how they might deal whereas we there's a bunch of questions that we can ask like you know how do other people cope with similar problems you know how have you how have you dealt with other problems like this in the past and there are questions that we could use that can facilitate coping. Um, but when people are worrying, they tend not to do that. So you're right, they, they ask the questions but don't arrive at the answers. Yeah. And often therapy consists in just giving people a, a, a bit of a nudge to think things through a little bit more uh, constructively. Yeah, as you said, you asked the question, so what would happen? Yeah, I think that's well, sometimes that is, yeah, to, to actually get an answer to that. So what could you cope? Uh, yes. And, and what strategies do you already have at hand? I think is, is an important one that, because we all have coping strategies we've developed, some better than others, but we, we have them. So just uh, as kind of a, let's put some pieces together. If, if people are going, okay, how can stoicism, how can some, let's just stay away from that even. How does this thought process help me deal with the fact that right now, I'm on shutdown. Um, you know, I've got all these things going on. What are some some things we can kind of highlight as some ways that would be helpful to to think about it, to approach it? Well, actually, just to kind of follow on from what we were talking about, the coping side of things, like we we could say a little bit about, and the Stoics are pretty good at that. So, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius is probably the most famous surviving Stoic text. Uh, the first chapter of it is different from the rest of the book. It consists in him talking about his teachers and family members, about 17 different people altogether, and he lists all the qualities he most admires about them. Mm. So he's doing a kind of modeling, you could call it cognitive or behavioral modeling. He's copying their attitudes and also their ways of dealing with things at a practical level, particularly his adoptive father, 
the emperor who preceded him, Antoninus Pius. So he's, without doubt, Marcus's supreme role model. He really admired his adoptive father. And he goes into an astounding amount of detail. Like, I, I, I would just pause and mention, anyone looking at that should think, if you were to describe the things you most admired about your, your father, like, how, you know, how much detail like, would you go into? You know, you, you'd maybe come up with a few things and you'd have to think about it a bit. Marcus does this several times in the meditations and goes into uh, such detail that he's clearly spent a lot of time thinking about this very question. And he knows exactly the qualities that he wants to emulate from his father. Like, he's got it nailed. And uh, so the Stoics were very good at this uh, systematic modeling of other people's coping abilities. They would look at other people and try and focus on what was worth emulating for them. They would seek out role models in life. And uh, the other question that Marcus asks himself very frequently, and other Stoics do as well, is what virtue has nature given me in order to deal with a situation? Again, you, this word in Greek, arete, like what uh, what positive quality, what character strength, uh, what capacity, you could say. And that's like today we say, you know, what resources do you have? What strategies do you have? What coping abilities do you have already that you could potentially apply to this situation? Uh, and again, it's just another way of a more constructive way of, of thinking about things. Uh, that, that facilitates practical problem solving or, uh, you know, uh, improved coping ability. So that's one thing that people could do. They could say, look, uh, a good way of starting as well is to say, if any, we're all in the same boat together. You know, a lot of people are in this situation and many people throughout history have been, uh, have had to live through pandemics. So if you think about the fact that some people cope better than others, that's a good starting point, I think. There are some people that cope badly with these situations and there are people that cope well. So with that as your kind of starting point, what's the difference between them? Mm. You know, what is it that makes someone a good at coping with this sort of situation? And you could even think of fictional characters or mythological characters or historical figures. You could think about how did Marcus Aurelius cope with the Antonine Plague that he lived through or uh, Socrates lived through the Plague of Athens, for example. Like how did they deal with those situations or how do other people that you see around you today friends and family members exhibit good coping in these situations or even if you were to stretch your imagination if you were coping more wisely more prudently more patiently more courageously you know if you think about positive traits that you admire in an abstract sense and then try and imagine how they would be applied in practice in this situation that's another way of just stretching your mind and encouraging you to to think about ways of coping with the situation that you face and we see the stoics doing that a lot that's definitely something that people could apply to the the current pandemic one of the things i've noticed with people when you ask them what they admire in somebody else they usually have those seeds within themselves i mean that's yeah that's part of what you're doing you're you're looking out there and going hey you know i admire that about this person oh wait how is that about me too and expanding into that uh rather than just putting it on that other person and leaving it there and we talked earlier about this idea that what, what i i would say very simply you know what what are therapy techniques in cbt or strategies in, in cbt for the stoics are often part of an entire philosophy of life so to them, this becomes something much bigger and deeper in scope. It becomes a matter of principle in a way to them that they would generally focus on the virtues that they can see in people around them, not just as a kind of instrumental thing. They go, oh, right now, this is a good strategic thing to do. They think, no, this makes for a good philosophy of life in general. 
like to try and look for the best in other people and identify what what's worth emulating uh, in people that we meet. And, and for the stories, even our enemies, we might think, although there are many bad things about this person, other characteristics, nevertheless, that I could possibly learn from them. I think there's, it's going to be interesting for people who are pondering this question now, because when this is over, and it will be over, what do we take out of that? You know, who do we become through this process? What does it reveal about ourselves? And what we're pointing to today, what you've been pointing to is that what might come out of that is an, is an expanded understanding of who you are, how you think, and how you relate to the world. I think so. That's a big part of it. And also, you know, the, a major theme in Stoicism and actually in Hellenistic philosophy and classical philosophy in general is this existential question of coming to terms with our own mortality. Mm. And the truth is, although many people are asking me at the moment about resilience, and we can talk about kind of stress management and resilience strategies and, and stuff like that, you know, the, the current pandemic, the Stoics would have said, you know, the, the most fundamental thing in a way is how we come to terms with our own mortality, you know, and realizing that we never have complete control over it and that we all have to die eventually. And that realizing that we're generally kind of in denial of that. We don't spend that much time really processing it and, and thinking about the implications of it. But I think one of the things that will come from the pandemic is, is it forces many people to engage in a kind of emotional processing of the fact of their own mortality. Mm-hmm. And maybe that leads to the a change in their general philosophy of life, a change in maybe some of their, their values will be revised, um, their priorities might change in life. And, and I guess the other big theme that often emerges from these sort of situations is a sense of gratitude that people often have for the opportunities that they do have in life. You know, because the the flip side of that would be realizing that for a long time we've lapsed into taking things for granted. And now, you know, the, the, the threat of that being taken away, perhaps, and, you know, we realize how easily it can all be turned on its head in society, um, that perhaps people begin to, to be more grateful for things that they previously took for granted and grateful for relationships maybe that they previously simply took for granted and also more grateful for the time that we have and realizing what a precious commodity uh, time is, is one of the major themes of of Stoic philosophy, Um, how we uh, should make the best use of the, the time that's available to us. It's the this the the what matters question I think is is what is going to come out of this and, and part of what you just you pointed to is that uh, the memento mori or thinking of your your death uh, brings that what matters because you don't have forever you know you, mm-hmm. what we don't know what the end is but we know it's a there's a time limit to it and suddenly that refocuses. Marcus Aurelius says to himself very bluntly, you know, you should stop acting as if you're going to live for three thousand years or as if you're going to live forever. You need to snap out of it and realize, you know, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Uh, he, you know, he was living through warfare and plague, mm-hmm. so he was more conscious, perhaps more confronted, perhaps with mm-hmm. his mortality than many of us are, are perhaps more sheltered from from uh, these kind of uh, aspects of life. Um, but as you get older, I think you're you're more confronted with mortality because more of your you see more of your friends, perhaps mm-hmm. uh, passing on. And, uh, you know, the Stoics want us to really fully appreciate the implications of that and ask ourselves what matters in life. And they have an answer to that, really. You know, they, they mainly want us to think about it. 
But their answer is, look, when you're born and you come into this world and you don't really know what it's all about, you're kind of looking around yourself for direction. What do you see? You see everybody running around after money and property and, uh, you know, they're trying to maintain their reputation in life and all the external stuff because that's all that you have to go on. So you start to emulate that. You don't think about it that deeply. You get caught up in the consumerism and the celebrity culture and all the stuff that we're surrounded by in society. But the Stoics believe that most people, if they really stop to question themselves deeply, will arrive at the conclusion that all of those things are relatively trivial. They're not really what constitutes true happiness. Health, wealth, reputation are only as good as the use that you actually make of them. Um, and what really matters is like moral wisdom or insight, like understanding how to use these things well in life rather than the things themselves. At most, they're merely a means to an end rather than the, the, the end itself. And the Stoics thought we're all kind of born into a situation where we're confused about that and we have to kind of learn to dig deeper and look within ourselves to figure out what really matters. And they believe that most of us will arrive at similar, similar conclusions when we do that, which is that what matters is, is this kind of insight that really puts everything else in its place. And you know, I find our culture now is so bound into finding a great answer. And I think what you just pointed to is sometimes the point is having a really good question mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that drives the thought process to something deeper. Well, the Stoics inherited that. They, they were, um, I mean, I suppose one thing I like to point out is that it, it's believed, and I believe, uh, that the Stoics consider themselves to be a Socratic school of philosophy very much following in the footsteps of Socrates. And they inherited many aspects of Socrates' philosophy, but uh, a central part of it is the Socratic method itself, which is the questioning method. Uh, and Socrates thought we should question our values very deeply. And uh, he, he, Socrates described philosophy as a therapy or a cure for a type of arrogance, a type mm. of conceit he said he was trying to cure. And he said it was a type of conceit that consisted in assuming that we knew what the goal of life was, when in fact, if we questioned that and examined it more deeply, we'd often realize we, that we were contradicting ourselves and kind of confused in many cases about our, our values and, and, and like what was important. So in reflection, we might say that something's important, but we don't really act as if that's the most important thing in life. We're often doing the opposite of what we, we might on reflection consider to be genuinely important. And we find this often in therapy. If we say to people, to you know, what are the qualities you most admire in other people and, and get them to reflect on uh, what they want their life to stand for. And then we ask them, well, how much time do you spend each day actually pursuing those things yourself? Uh, people will often say, well, not very much or, or, or maybe no time. You know, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too busy working or you know, watching TV or spending time on Facebook. But nobody ever had engraved on their tombstone, I wish I'd spent more time on Facebook. As far as I know, anyway. <laughs> I should have scrolled more. <laughs> yeah. Wish, I wish I'd, if only I'd spent more time on YouTube watching 
cat videos of it. <laughs> <laughs> if I could turn back the clock. <laughs> Just that would have given me the answer. <laughs> this has been a great uh, conversation and I think adds so much to think people's process because I think right now there is an immediate uh, emergency feel um, and this mm. gives us kind of a reset of saying, okay, how do we want to move through this? How do we want to think about moving through this? How do we want to think about things? And uh, what do we take away from this this moment? Because there are going to be lessons. And I, mm. I think what we're, you've been pointing to is the fact that the lessons can change our lives to a deeper level, to something that uh, brings us beyond where we've been living uh, up till now. Mm-hmm. I think symbolically this gets situation gets uh, people thinking and, and, and this isn't in many ways meant to kind of diminish the seriousness of the situation that, that we're facing, which I think many people actually have underestimated mm. and many people generally have underestimated how serious the, the pandemic is. But nevertheless, well, one of the things I'd like to say to people is uh, for the vast, vast majority of people, this is not going to be the most serious challenge that they will face in their life. Mm-hmm. Like there's probably going to be more serious problems that they still have to face in life than the pandemic presents for them. But nevertheless, because of the way it's affecting society as a whole, it makes people think about things. So it's a good opportunity to take stock and really evaluate your coping, evaluate your philosophy of life, in part in order to prepare for the the possibly much bigger issues and more threatening issues that, that still have to come down the pipe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this is the, the, the fact that it feels so big is because it's global, but individually is what you're talking about. There's exactly. individual moments that can come later on. And the, probably this isn't even going to be what kills most people, right? They're much more likely to die of something else. Um, but also, you know, there's going to be you know, other moral challenges, like mm. relationship challenges that people face, maybe in the wake of this, or maybe mm a decade or more from now like people might face society in our lifetime might even face a more serious pandemic than this or it might face a, another more serious type of catastrophe than the the pandemic we in some ways you know most of us in the in the first world have had a relative as a in terms of society as a whole have had a pretty cushy uh time of it we've been pretty lucky so that might continue after this, or there may be, you know, sometimes there, there might be a series of misfortunes that befall a society. Um, so we'll see, you know, we still have to deal with economic consequences, of course, of this, and that's going to be another big issue for, for some people. You know, they might sail through it from a health perspective. You know, many people will get this virus and be barely affected by it themselves, but they might be devastated by the effect it has on their job and their relationships and other aspects of their life months or even years from now. So it's uh, it's a signal, like you say, because it affects society as a whole. That makes us think, but really it should be an opportunity to prepare for other problems, I think, that we have to face in life. And life is a, a never-ending series of challenges. Those are great words, Donald. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people have uh, keyed in on this and, and uh, decide that maybe there's a, a deeper dive they need to do. What are some ways they can follow up with, with your books, with your material, with your courses? What, what's a good place to link up with you? Well, my website is just donaldrobertson.name. So it's just all one word, my name, and then not .com, but .name. So 
if they go there, they can find all my social media stuff and discussion groups and books and whatnot. And also there's an organization I should mention that I'm uh, one of the founding members of. It's a non-profit uh, run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers. So some of them are well-known authors. Uh, the psychologists and classicists and philosophers in the team and that's called Modern Stoicism and the website is modernstoicism.com and they run the annual conference on Stoicism, they run an online course on Stoicism, they have a, a blog with over 600 articles on it from dozens and dozens of different people around the world writing about the subject from all sorts of different perspectives so that's also a really important resource that I would steer people towards the modernstoicism.com website and we'll put the links for that in the show notes and uh, make sure that uh, anybody who's got some interest in that has a place to follow up and learn more because uh, we've, we've scratched the surface of stoicism and what it means. Uh, and there's so much more to that and so much more to what you've contributed to that. So, uh, Donald, thank you so much for sharing and thank you for uh, your words of advice on how to move through this in ways that uh, can uh, bring us new ways of thinking about the world even after it's over. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Listening to the Thrivology Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at Thrivology.com or at ThrivologyMagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.